for dropping in to this episode of Reading Between the Wines with your hostesses, Winona Glass and the Psalm of the South, Keegan Moore. Hello! This time we're talking about When the Stars Go Dark, a novel by Paula McLean that came out in April of 2021. This is a dark novel, obviously, from from the title, When the Stars Go Dark, set in Mendocino. And if memory serves me correct, Mendocino is kind of a wine hotspot. Yeah, they're not as popular as maybe they should be, but they they got some vines there. So the book opens with Anna Hart, and Anna is in a period of transition, kind of finding herself. She's got a lot of guilt she's trying to work through. Like, she's just got a lot of emotions happening, and she needs to leave her life for a minute. So she leaves her life as a detective in the Violent Crimes Against Children unit and escapes back to her hometown of Mendocino, California. She hasn't been there in 15 years, and she ends up renting this little, like, hunting cabin in the middle of nowhere with no electricity or no running water or something. I bet it was, like, 400 bucks a month, right? So hard to beat. California rent, I feel like that's pretty good. She runs into, almost as soon as she gets there, she runs into her old childhood friend, Will Flood, who is the new sheriff in town. Just like his father. Just like his daddy. His daddy was the previous sheriff of Mendocino, and now Will has followed in his father's footsteps. Anna and Will go way back, and I think it's kind of interesting that both of them end up in law enforcement positions, given that they kind of had this traumatic incident in their childhood with their other friend, Caleb, and that they were all friends with Jenny Ford, Caleb's sister, and Jenny mysteriously dies when they're all teenagers. I feel like this kind of affected the way that their life went because I don't know that they would have necessarily gone into law enforcement if they had, especially Anna with the violent crimes against children, if that hadn't happened in their lives when they were teenagers. Right. Kind of at that vulnerable point in their lives when they're looking at their futures. Very impressionable. So we learn a little bit more about Anna. She feels drawn to a case that Will is working on. There is a 15-year-old girl that has gone missing. Her name is Cameron Curtis. And Will is getting a lot of pressure to get progress on this case because Cameron is the adopted daughter of a famous actress named Emily and her... Hollywood producer, kind of skeezy husband, Troy. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I kind of, I, I got weird vibes coming from Troy's character, even at the very beginning. What about you? Yeah. He kind of just seemed like a sleazy kind of guy or something. I, I mean, he know. just like, they live in Mendocino, but he spends a lot of time in LA and he's not home a lot. And I don't know. I just felt like this was a cliched recipe for Someone every Hollywood producer. Yeah. It was an interesting storyline that unfolds. And so as they learn more and try to get to know the family, because obviously that's the first place that they go, Emily is trying to keep this out of the press because she is so high profile. She doesn't want there to be a bunch of amateur people looking for Cameron. She really wants the police to do it, but she wants it to happen quickly. Mendocino is not a large town, so to be able to have the resources that they need, Will is struggling, but he's you can tell this is just like weighing on his conscience because he he's having all these feelings of what happened with Jenny. Like it's just regurgitating all of this these feelings from back when they were younger. We go on as the book progresses. There's two other missing girls. Polly, who was kidnapped in her bedroom at a sleepover, and this one was like the most random one to me because 
the guy who did the kidnapping didn't even know which girl he was supposed to kidnap. Like he asked the three other, there's four girls in there and he was like, okay, which one of you is Polly? Do do you live here? Right. (laughs) Which one of you lives here? I need to kidnap the kid who lives here. Like that was just such a random encounter, especially knowing that the mom was there in the house as well when that happened. Like that's a horrible feeling to know that someone has come in and kidnapped your daughter out of your house while she's having a sleepover and you're in the other room. And then Shannon, who was a much more troubled child and had had a lot of issues and, you know, even her mom had kind of given up on her. So they're trying to find the connection between all of these girls and how Anna can work through this. So she's trying to be involved, but she's technically not Not a detective at the moment. (laughs) So there's kind of this gray area. So she's like, okay, well, I will help you, but I want no credit. I want no one to know who I am. I want to be like a special counsel, and that's it. And so she's feel she has a little more freedom and a little less oversight because while she is a police officer, she's not in her jurisdiction, and she's also technically not employed by – because she's on leave from something that happened. And we're not exactly sure – what happens? It's very unclear what happens at the beginning of the book. And really, until we get closer to the end of the book, we really don't know what happens, why she left home and her husband. We just know that her child died, and we don't know any of the circumstances surrounding it, which is a horrible, horrible situation, especially for someone who works in violent crimes against children. So they have this other friend we mentioned, Caleb, and Caleb is an artist, and I guess he inherited all of his dad's art as well, and so he became like this recluse millionaire type guy, and I don't know, he just seems to have changed a lot after his sister's death, and the three friends that were so close have kind of fallen into different parts, you know, they just grew different ways, and Caleb was kind of a... I guess he became a loner, right? I mean, he was living in this huge mansion by himself. His dad's dead, and apparently he was a famous artist, and so he gets, sells all his works and makes all his money. So he just kind of never comes out of his house. Doesn't Anne, like, run into him early on when she first returns to Mendocino? And she's like, oh, hey, Caleb, how's it going? Yeah, it was just this awkward kinda encounter. Awkward, yeah. You know, it was like, I'm happy to see you, but I really don't know what to say to you because— It's been so long since we've talked. It was a very different first encounter than she had with Will. Because I feel like when she saw Will, it was like seeing your brother for the first time in 10 years, right? I mean, it was like they fell right back into being friends and giving each other crap. And just really, it could be the line of work that they're both in, too. I mean, there's like a bond that law enforcement have that, you know, so it could could have been that versus Caleb's an artist. And she doesn't really know how to relate to being someone who's a recluse artist when she's not (laughs) you know he's not married no kids she's married with kids and it's a very different situation so and I I can imagine that when you run into him he's not as excited to see you as Will probably was exactly Will was thrilled to see Anna because he hadn't seen her in so long and she was shocked to find out that he was the sheriff and had fallen in his dad's footsteps and (laughs) So there's a few other characters in this book that are interesting to note. So Emily, the famous actress, has a brother, and his name is Drew, and he owns a winery in Mendocino, or just outside of Mendocino. And they call it a winery, but I guess, is it technically a winery? You're going to have to help me on this, because they only sell grapes. They don't necessarily 
make wine. They make grapes to sell to other vineyards. Yeah, it's called like Drew's Provisions. Provisions, yeah. So I it's like a great name. I wouldn't call it a winery. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's just in the business of selling grapes to other actual wineries and vintners in the valley. Interesting. Well, we're going to put a note in that because I want to learn more about that when we get to your half of the podcast. Anna has like a weird encounter with him and she's like gets the feeling that he has some sort of anger or bad vibes. Yes. It comes out later, much later, that I guess Cameron had had some negative interactions with both Drew and Emily's father as well. And yeah, and they talk about how she had become like that Cameron had become this like recluse and like didn't want to. She was like this bright, really outgoing daughter. And then all of a sudden she becomes this reserved, like doesn't want to interact with the family, doesn't really talk anymore. I felt like this book was really eye opening for me to make note of those changes in children's behavior and children's personalities and not try to excuse it away to, oh, well, they're going through their teenage years or they're going through this phase or that phase, to really ask harder questions about what is going on here. Because what you find out is that all of this happened, like, again, while everyone was in the house together. And these interactions and these very disturbing situations that involved Cameron, who was at the time like eight or nine, all happened while the whole family was together. Yeah, the statistics in this book are pretty heart-wrenching. I think it says the onset of sexual abuse starts at ages 7 to 13, and 90% of that, they're targeted by a family member. So, yeah, they're like on family vacation and yeah, stuff's happening. And as no a parent, you're leaving it with someone you think you, you trust. Think you trust, yeah. And have no idea. This was a hard book to read. It was very page turning. You know, it, it was a very well written book. It was Definitely. very engaging, but it was a hard book to read. I mean, heart wrenching. Yeah. Yes, yes. Just the amount of, like you said, statistics, the things they have to deal with, the fact that these crime units even exist is gut-wrenching, you know, to someone who has kids and thinks they're safe and doing all the right things, whatever that means, and only to find out that you're actually leaving your kid with a sexual predator and you didn't even know that. So it's a good conversations to have. And actually, conversation that I, something that I just heard recently is that you shouldn't have like 100 minute conversation with your kids about all the things that are related to all these heavy topics. We'll just say heavy topics that you should have 101 minute conversations like over several years and just like check in points. And instead of making it one like huge, uncomfortable conversation, make it more normal. Like sprinkle it into daily life. Yeah. Like, yeah. Maybe don't trust strangers. Maybe hey, you know that think if some, twice before you do something. You know that if something bad happens to you, mom's not gonna judge you. You can totally have that conversation with me and I wanna know about it and I wanna help you. And if anything weird is happening in your life, in any part of your life, you should talk to me about it. That's it. Like that's the only conversation you need to have and just like plant those seeds as opposed to trying to like wait for something big to happen. And so I I felt like that was a really heavy topic, but for parents, it was a really good topic to continue to have and 
shed a lot of light to me in that there's not this like people don't come with a creepy, scary label because I totally would have labeled Drew as the bad guy in this. <laughs> and he turns out not to be the bad guy at all. He just. Yeah, I didn't have my light bulb moment until towards the end. Yeah. And yeah. I was a little shocked at the whodunit at the end. Definitely. It was for our Patreon subscribers. We'll give you a little more info on the after show. But I was a little shocked at how this book ended. It brought up definitely a lot of things for Anna because Anna was a foster kid. You know, her mom died of a heroin overdose when she was a teenager on Christmas Day. And she had two younger half siblings that she absolutely adored, uh, Jason and Amy. And she was trying to cook eggs on Christmas morning to make it normal for them. And she burned the eggs and the fire department and the police show up. and they well, Thank realize- goodness, right? Because... Like, what would have happened if she wouldn't have burned the eggs? Like, how how long would they have gone? I don't know. Without their mother before, like, the nosy neighbor, Phyllis, which I thought yes. was It's a very appropriate but, name. Yeah. <laughs> you know, would have discovered that these kids are, like, living on their own. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, though. I just felt like, you know, they, they took away Jason and Amy and they left, essentially, Anna to fend for herself. And they split them up because they weren't technically related, right? I mean— that that was a really hard part, too, because I feel like Anna had a lot of guilt around that. Like, she's the one who burned the eggs. Definitely. She's the one who caused Jason and Amy to leave. And now she doesn't know where Jason and Amy are. And Anna does get in, end up getting adopted by a great family, Hep and Eden. And I feel like Hep was a really strong father figure for her. You know, like, I feel like he really changed her life for the good because she could have really gone down a rabbit hole, followed her mom into drugs and everything. But Hep was one who took her out into nature and said like, let's, let's go for a hike and let's figure this out and let's work through all of these emotions. And I don't feel like there's a lot of male role models who would have done that. And I've loved the character of Hep. Like I've, I really felt like he too. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I felt like he really was a good, strong person for her in her life. And But even Hep leaves her in a very odd way. Like, she goes off to college, and two months after she leaves her college, he disappears in the woods. Now, I mean, the man spent most of his life in the woods, and so for him to disappear in the woods seems... Kind of suspicious, and just we, like, odd. never find out in the end what happened to him. But, I I, yeah, I feel like he was, like, the ideal leader and, like, the perfect, like, Boy Scout dad or whatever, yes, yes. you know, and he just goes off in the woods and he's never seen again. Like, no, it almost like treated him like a cabin? dog. Yeah. Well, it's like a dog, like just goes off to die. And right. it's like, well, but, but wait, he's I healthy, just don't feel like that was active. a really good ending for him, yeah. for that character. Like it just, I don't know. Part of me was like, wanted more, wanted closure for Hep because I did get attached to him throughout this Definitely, um, yeah. book. And, you know, Eden dies whenever Anna is... 16, which is a hard time to lose somebody after you've lost your mom. So then to lose your your foster mom when you're 16, there was just a lot of loss in this book, a lot. Again, it was a very heavy book, but it was very good. But we always like the unsung heroes, right? I'm always about the unsung heroes in this book. And I feel like there's a couple of them. One is Cricket. Yeah. <laughs> so Cricket's the dog who names itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is amazing. Another is Tally, the psychic. And, you know, there's give and take. There's all different kinds of emotions and things about 
psychics and working with law enforcement. But Tally really did help. Like Anna wanted to hear what Tally had to say because she keeps talking about Shannon, how Shannon's not alive, but she kind of guides them to where Shannon is. And that's when they really start to figure out, like, who are they looking for? Like, when they find Shannon's body, who was in the back of a car that had been burned but not burned in a way that would harm her body. And I, I don't know. I definitely don't understand the psyche of someone who does things like this, but it helped them understand they were looking for someone who was either, like, a game warden or a... A ranger? A park ranger or military, something, somebody who knew their way around because she was left in the back of a car in a very interesting location that was definitely not going to be found unless it was intentional. But then he burned the car, but burned the car in a way that he actually made a wall so that it wouldn't burn her body. I don't know. It was just like... Very well thought out and planned. And I think the coroner's report actually said she died from a strangulation. So it's Mm -hmm. like, but that, yeah, he didn't want to, you know, like burn the forest down. So he like made an effective fire, but not like one that would, you Mm -hmm. know, enrage everything around it. But it even didn't burn the trunk. So her body was still intact whenever they found it months after she had gone missing. And Shannon was a sad story in that, you know, her mom definitely had given up on her and didn't even file the missing persons report until months after she'd been missing because she was like, well, sometimes she comes back. So why involve the police? But Polly's kidnapping was definitely very different. And unfortunately, Cameron is the only one who's found alive in this. She's in bad shape, but she's still alive. And, And she does make a full recovery physically. Emotionally, yeah, she's scarred. Emotionally, she's definitely gonna have to go through a lot to get back to normal. I thought it was interesting that this brought up a lot for Anna because she finds out that Cameron is adopted. She gets the original like adoption records on her own, on her own in her special counsel role. (laughs) And she goes to visit the home of, of where Cameron, which was not her name came from. And she meets Hector, who was her biological brother. And She sees a lot of herself in Hector because Hector couldn't save Cameron from the abuse that was happening at the house. And I feel like he also had a lot of guilt around that, like the same guilt that Anna had around Jason and Amy, Hector had around Cameron's disappearance or Cameron being given up for adoption or taken, I guess she was taken from the home. She wasn't really given up for adoption. She was taken from the home because of the abuse that was happening to her. I feel like it just helped Anna get over the guilt she felt around Jason and Amy because she could see herself in Hector and she could see it wasn't really benefiting her and it wasn't gaining her anything. It was just guilt. Yeah. And it was just weighing her down. And given her current situation with the death that she had just encountered with her own children, it was only exacerbating everything. And so I feel like guilt was an underlying theme in this book as well. Yeah. What surprised you most when you were reading this book? So Anna has this like flashback thing about like killing a raven. Oh, yes. Yes. And I was just like, is this really necessary? But like, I guess it was because she was doubting the fact that she could take care of Cricket. Mm -hmm. But I was just like kind of blown away. I'm like, really? You got like rage and killed a bird? You know, like... I mean, not everybody loves birds, but I was like, uh, okay, okay. 
I think the part that surprised me the most was the author story at the end that you find out that this is actually not based on her life, but that she was a foster kid. She was adopted by a great family. The impetus for this book really came from her life. And I was shocked by that. I think that's great. I mean, I think that's a great, it's great to put it out there. It's definitely great to celebrate it. And it's great to be able to have this wonderful novel as a token of where you've come from and where you are now. Ending on a very happy note, if you could have invited one of these characters over for dinner, who would it have been? Well, it probably should be Corolla because I feel like everyone could talk to a therapist. (laughs) Even a therapist has a therapist. Yes. I really liked Hap. Yeah. I feel like I could get a lot of like life lessons from Mm -hmm. him on like hunting and how to survive in the wilderness alone and Mm -hmm. if you get lost. Definitely. But we also didn't mention the campers. My gosh, which were like the most random characters. Clay and Lenore. Well, Clay ends up like saving Anna when she's like wandering around on the beach when she can't get back up. She's going to get sucked away by the ocean. And then all of a sudden this guy Clay shows up and they're the ones who are like, hey, uh, you have a dog now. Yeah, the dog's following you around. You know, it's you should just have that dog, right? I know, because she kept thinking it was theirs, and they're like, no, it's not ours. And they just kept showing up at, like, random points in the book. And so, I don't know, in, like, the whole arc of the book, I thought that they were going to have a bigger role, and... No. (laughs) They didn't. Yeah. What about you? (laughs) I also loved Hap, and I feel like it would have been great to go hiking with him. But I feel like Tally, the Uh, psychic... Yeah, yeah. I would really like to have her over for dinner, although I feel like she'd be expecting me to ask her. (laughs) Right. (laughs) She's always waiting, like, go ahead, uh-huh. say it, ask yeah. me. <laughs> exactly. She's always reading my mind. I feel like that would be a really fun dinner. I'm fascinated by people who have this ability and have this intuition and have this ability to talk to. I don't know if she, she just had visions. She didn't really talk right, to There's no people. real control, but she was definitely yeah. seeing things. She said she had dreams about them, but she talked even with Anna and she said that she had dreams about her. And... I don't know. I feel like that's really interesting to know that someone can just like have a conversation with you and then all of a sudden knows these things about you. I find that that level of intuition or empathy or connection or whatever it is that they call it, psychic ability, if you will. Didn't she also know Hap as well? Yeah. So there was definitely another connection like underlying there. Mm -hmm. Everybody knew Hap. I mean, fair. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody in town knew Hap. Which is why his disappearance is so interesting and, I don't know, just very odd. We will tell you, Hap did not do it. <laughs> we never know what happens to Hap. He is he comes out of this, other than his mysterious disappearance at the end, he is still a great guy at the end of this. All right. We're going to pour ourselves something. What do you have on tap for us? I mean, Mendocino, lots of grapes there. What are we drinking today? Well, Jenny actually worked at Hush Vineyards, Oh, which is in Mendocino. So I have for us a 2020 Hush Vineyards Gewürztraminer. So we're going to drink a wine from the book that we actually read. Exactly. Well, that's kind of amazing. Exciting. Well, Keegan is going to pour us a glass of this Gewürztraminer. Yeah. And we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back. All right, Keegan. Tell us more about this Hush Gewürztraminer. 
Yeah, so we haven't really discussed this grape before. So Gewürztraminer is literally spicy traminer. Gewürz means spicy. Okay. Is a pink skinned grape. Mm. And it's a mutation of red traminer, aka Sauvignon Rosé. So it's in that same huge family. But I wanted to talk about Mendocino because... Mm -hmm. Our book takes place takes there. Takes place there. Well, it's the city of Mendocino. Mm -hmm. And so wine is grown in Mendocino County. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about super north California. So this is the north coast. We are north of Napa. Mm -hmm. It's about 17,000 acres or about around 7,000 hectares of vineyards. That's total of all of them, not of just hush. Right, yes. Okay. So a lot of the wineries here are very small and independent. Mm -hmm. So not as much of it can be found, even in the United States, but also worldwide. So do they do more local, like, wine club type things? Definitely. Or, okay, so it's more you need to go the, to the winery to experience the wine. Yeah, but it's it's rural you know, there's a lot of beautiful, small little towns. Always. Lots of giant redwoods, which are phenomenal. There's more than a million acres of forest. Oh, nice. But before wine, there was logging of redwoods, which is, you know, unfortunate. And sheep and apples were the most important things here until the 70s and 80s. And they also have a long history of bootleg wineries. When that pesky prohibition thing was going on. It's a sad time in our country. <laughs> yeah, but there's lots of hills, so there's a lot of isolation up there, so you could kind of get away with stuff. But Mendocino is pretty awesome because there are leaders in sustainable, organic, and biodynamic farming. Mm. So the United States represents only 4% of organic wine grown worldwide, mm -hmm. and around 30% of that are in... Mendocino okay. as organic. So the best wine growing region is kind of at the confluence of the two rivers there. So it's the Russian River and the Navarro River. Mm -hmm. So Anderson Valley is like the main valley. It's the one you're most likely going to see on a bottle if you do see something from Mendocino. There's also Potter Valley, which is a little bit cooler. Redwood Valley, which is actually high up enough. So it's above the fog line. So okay. it's warmer. So there's more full-bodied reds there, like Cabs, Cabernet Sauvignon, Petite Syrah, Zinfandel. And another little, like, weird fun fact, Cole Ranch is the smallest AVA in America. So there's pretty much one winery there. <laughs> Cole Ranch is super, super tiny. The What's AVA? American Viticultural Area. Oh, okay. So it's like the AOC of France would be okay. AVA here. Gotcha. And it actually decreased in size in 2014, which is another pretty rare thing. But they didn't want, like, boundaries to overlap with the new Eagle Peak Mendocino County AVA. So another weird kind of thing up here, because they're not as well known, is only 25% of production actually stays in Mendocino County. Really? So the rest of it is sold for uh, stuffing mostly Napa and Sonoma wines. So when you put Napa on a label, it doesn't have to be 100% Napa. So this is where Drew's winery, quote-unquote winery, his comes grapes in. grapes would end up in. His provisions right. was actually selling grapes likely to Napa. Exactly. And so how 
I'm just in, intrigued by this whole process that people grow grapes with the intention of selling them to someone else. How do you know what grapes to grow? I mean, do you just what grows in that region? So, you know, do they change every year? I'm just very curious about how that I mean, works. it takes several years from when you grow a vine to when it's actually producing quality grapes. So there's definitely you should be doing some research. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's data out there that you can look at. So they're probably just sticking to like two or three that they know are going to sell that grow well in that area that all the vintners can use as opposed to experimenting every year with like, oh, let's try now growing Grenache grapes as opposed to Sauvignon Blanc. Right. I mean, you're definitely taking into account the climate there, which is cooler. Mm -hmm. So there's Gewürztraminer and Riesling and they grow a lot of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir for sparkling wine. But yeah, they're ultimately also selling off to Napa and Sonoma, which, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon is king. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're definitely not making as much money. Right. Because you're a glorified farmer. <laughs> but that's sometimes people's path, you know. Or if you already have money like Drew did, you know. Right. I mean, he needed a outlet. And mm-hmm. he seemed that he was a very impassioned grower, that he was there for harvest. He was very involved which actually was essentially his alibi whenever he was being investigated by Anna was that he was there for the harvest and he was it's harvest. Yeah. I can't go and talk about whatever you guys want to talk about. Oh, Oh, some girls missing. Like it's harvest. Yeah. Yeah. He had bigger fish to fry at that immediate time period than to worry about what was happening with his niece and his famous sister. Because it's all, as we've discussed before, it's kind of all hands on deck when we talked about the lost vintage. Exactly. And they talked about how harvest was such a big deal. And I just still remember they found the pie in the closet, which I feel is always the the sign of a good party when you can find a pie in the closet. That, you know, harvest is obviously this huge deal with this huge ending. So there was no way that he could be involved because. You definitely celebrate when harvest is over because it's full hands on deck. Yes. But that kind of has to do with once you decide to pick, like, that's when you need to pick. Like, mm-hmm. okay, let's go. Mm-hmm. So as I said before, it is one of – Anderson Valley is one of California's coolest climates. Anderson Valley is like 10 miles end-to-end. Elevation around 800 to 1,300 feet, 250 to 400 meters roundabout. Um, but they're very close to the ocean. So Mendocino City is like on the coast. Okay. And so the vineyards are – which we discovered because Anna almost died at the beach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Turns out the Pacific Ocean is serious and a and little cold. more rocky and yeah. not quite the beaches that you and I have grew up knowing, but yes, it's a little more rugged beach. So Rotorer Estate is one of the most well-known entities in Anderson Valley, the Champagne House Louis Rotorer chose Mendocino in 1981. And a lot of other producers ended up in Carneros, which borders the southern part of Napa and Sonoma. But as I said, it's actually cooler in Anderson Valley. So they're obviously making sparkling wine from Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, but also Riesling and Gewürztraminer. And two of the biggest wineries in Mendocino are Parducci, who landed there in 1967, and then Fetzer who came in 1968, founded by a lumber executive. Shocking, right? Barney mm-hmm. Fetzer. And they're now owned by uh, Concha e Toro, 
which is a winery of Chile. Hush is kind of like the next tier down in size. Okay. But it's still not that big of a production. <laughs> and Hush is spelled H-U-S-C-H. So there's a silent C in there, correct? Hush. Hush. <laughs> yeah. Yes. My so, German is not as good, so. Gewitztamina. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's American, so, you know. It is typically a drier style, whereas it can be an off-dry grape. Well, let's talk about this wine because it's been sitting in front of us now for quite a bit and I feel like it needs it needs to be liberated. Sure. So Hush is the oldest winery in Anderson Valley. They were first licensed in 1971. So they kind of cut to the chase first. But the Hugh Oswald Jr. bought the 6,000 case winery from the Hush family in 1967, and they had been growing pears in Santa Clara mm-hmm. Valley. So they were originally farmers. And it's now run by the third generation, Zach Robinson and Amanda Robinson Holstein. And it's about 60 acres. So. 60 acres seems very small. About 24 hectares. But yeah, that's what I'm saying. They're like the next tier behind a couple of the bigger wineries. Okay. And they're, so it's very small independent when you say, I was thinking like, you know, a couple hundred acres, like two or 300 acres, but 60 acres seems very small. Yeah. And they're one of the bigger ones. So. Wow. Okay. So Mendocino, when you say small independent, you mean small, small yeah, independent. Got exactly. it. Okay. You also poured something else for us to drink today that is not wine. Oh yeah. We're um, drinking some lychee juice. Lychee juice. Okay. I've never seen it. Like as a fresh fruit in the market, so, right? But it's one of the looks defining, like raspberries, kind of. Yeah, it's got this really round, almost like viscous mouthfeel. Mm-hmm. But it's supposed to be like one of the defining characteristics of Gewurztraminer. So, are we drinking the lychee juice first before the? I just wine? thought it would like impression okay. into your mind what lychee is. Okay, so we could find it in the wine. All right. So you ready to drink? Yes. I always like when you give me hints. Like, okay, <laughs> you're looking for this. This is what you're looking for. Uh-huh. Yes. Find this in the wine. I'm much better at that. Um, so it's pretty aromatic. There is... Ooh, there's a lot going on in this A lot this going on in there. Yeah. You don't have to try very hard to get all the things. It's kind of screaming at us, but, you know. <laughs> I definitely think the lychee is here. Pretty pronounced. Mm-hmm. Also... Like rose petals? Oh, I did not smell rose petals. Let me smell again. I'm still smelling. I get a a really strong front end of alcohol. I mean, this is around, it's 13.9%. Okay. So it's going to be one of the higher ones as far as white ones go. Alcohol to see what else is there. Because for me, like that's the prominent smell. Gotcha. I haven't tasted it yet. So I don't know if the lychee is there, but. And then I get a bunch of grapefruit, like white. Grapefruit. Ooh, yep. So yep. It's I got that, that citrus thing going on too, but also some like pear. Hmm. Okay. Pear or maybe peach. I, I can smell the peach. Yes. Mm, like peach juice almost. <laughs> All right. Let's try it. So I get like that spice. Like what it's named for, mm-hmm. more on the palate. It's got a hard finish. Like I'm feeling it all the way down. The spice? Yeah. It's like like white pepper maybe or 
like raw ginger. Oh, that that is a much better. I mean, it, it is like okay. This also because of everything we just said is a pretty food friendly wine. Kind of yeah, got some nice that. acid there, but obviously, I think it would pair well with most Asian dishes. Like a stir fry with ginger in it. <laughs> uh-huh. Or um, even uh, like a, they make a, I've had chicken soup recently. It's a Thai chicken soup that has like strips of ginger in it. I feel mm. like this would go really well with that. Yeah. With like rice, chicken, and strips of ginger. Um, for the vegetarians, I could also see this with like roasted squash mm-hmm. and eggplant mm-hmm. or pumpkin if it's the right season. <laughs> Every season is pumpkin season yeah. in America. And then if you get some like off-dry Gewürztraminer, you can get into the spicier things. So like a red or yellow curry, I think mm. would really be good. I could see that. That would be... Or even mm. like... I'm hungry for curry. Yeah. <laughs> or like warm camembert with some like honey on it. Mm. Sounds pretty amazing to me. We love cheese and toast around here. Mmm, Toast. <laughs> Speaking of peaches, they do have a like lone peach tree in the middle of one of their vineyards. And they were like contemplating like pulling it out and they had to do like all this extra work to like work around it because they wanted to leave it. So that's like because that's like a nod to its history, right? Because you said that's a peach area. Yeah, they were growing. So this one lone peach tree is right smack dab in the middle of a vineyard that they have to work around. I love it. They had to give it it extra space or they would be like shading the vineyard. Mm -hmm. And so, but it is pretty cool there. Summer heats only like into the mid nineties and most nights are around 50 degrees. Mm -hmm. Smaller. quite a swing in temperature though. Definitely. I mean, that's, you know, a lot of people like to hate on California wine, but they do have pretty drastic temperature differences, which can be quite beneficial to grapes. Um, It is harvested by hand and often at night to kind of preserve the freshness. Um, I think we're going to talk more about that in a future podcast. Absolutely. Harvesting at night. And this was around $15, so pretty reasonably priced. You know, they're not using any oak, so there's no need to, like, jack up the price there. Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty tasty, do you like it? I, I do. Know you don't love the white wines. So. I, I well, uh, I do like this. It is a little more difficult on the back end for me, like from the acidity standpoint. But I feel like if I had paired this with food, this would be a really great complement to a lot of the dishes that we talked about. Like I definitely could see this with a curry right now, or with a different kind of soup. I think it would be quite lovely, especially given the temperatures outside. So yeah, I would drink this again. Awesome. Um, I would like to mention just to give them some credit because we did talk about how Mendocino is kind of on the forefront of organics. Mm-hmm. They do farm most of their fields organically, but they're not certified. But they are certified fish friendly. Okay. Which- so is it a vegan wine then? They do not mention whether or not they use egg whites or anything else in their fining process. Okay. They also converted to a no-till ground cover in the 1970s, which kind of helps with prevention of soil erosion. And they did have a gopher problem. Oh, goodness. Which apparently gophers are really good at building tunnels and damaging roots and can also cause erosion. So their solution was to get some owls. Oh. And they installed a couple owl boxes. Okay, so they did it more from a natural perspective. Right, and that's kind of like biodynamics and sustainability is Let nature take its course. Exactly. What gets rid of gophers. 
Owls. Owls. And then they also use sheep in the spring to mow nice. in the natural way. And they also leave a, <clears throat> like, organic matter. They leave some uh, compost. Exactly. That's great for some the roots Pre-compost. Well. Uh-huh. So, yeah. So if you can't find Hush in the market, Navarro is also an excellent producer. Really good Gewürztraminer. Rotorer Estate is pretty well distributed. So that's going to be sparkling wine. Really great value. And Goldeneye, mm-hmm. which is owned by Duckhorn, is making some really good Pinot Noir here. Interesting. Okay, so we have several then choices if we can't find Hush that's still in the Gewürztraminer, Mendocino area producers. So, yeah, if you're in California and maybe you don't want to deal with the craziness that is Napa Valley, then maybe go check out Mendocino. It seems like a... Less hectic, but still very rich area for good wines that are still affordable and maybe off the beaten path, but very, very well cultivated. Yeah. I mean, bring a jacket, right? But uh, you might get (laughs) some more. Not for the day. (laughs) Right. But you might get some more like one-on-one interaction with a winemaker than you would have the chance to in Napa or Sonoma. Absolutely. Especially if they only have 60 acres, there's a really good chance that you would be able to talk at length with the owner or the vintner or the winemaker or whomever from that vineyard. Unless you pop in around harvest, which I never recommend. Yes. And when is harvest typically in the U.S.? It depends, but into September, into October. Okay. Sometimes in November, but that's pretty rare. So definitely, like, we should go midsummer to winter, early fall. Somewhere around in there. Depending on how much you want to see the grapes on the vine. Okay. Sometimes it's like, oh, you know, if you go in like December or winter when they're just, you know, sleeping. Yes. So. Yes. <laughs> or be there during harvest and like there's quite a few that will do like working vacations. Like, please come yeah. help us with harvest and we'll give you all the wine you want. <laughs> go check out our fermenters. They're working hard right now. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we have discussed a a very heavy topic today, but we've had a very nice conversation about Mendocino and everything that it offers us as well. So we hope you've enjoyed this episode. For our Patreon subscribers, please hang on and head over to Patreon because we have more information that we're going to talk about with this book, and we will give you a little bit more information about the wine. So until we meet again, always keep your glass half full. Cheers! Cheers!